This is The Guardian. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Science Weekly is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash scienceweekly today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash scienceweekly. The heat is on. It's been a week of record-breaking heat around the world. The Earth's temperature reaching an all-time high four days in a row. The peak daily heat index has reached 100 or higher for 25 days straight. As the risk for heat illness surges, all of us are going to be at risk. From Phoenix to Miami, Rome to Beijing, people across the world are experiencing scorching temperatures this week. It was suffocating. Yeah. I mean, we are from Washington, D.C., and we get a lot of heat there. But it's not like this. I have seen many wildfires, but none like this one. This is terrible. Horrible. And far from being over, the World Meteorological Organization says the heatwave in the Northern Hemisphere is going to intensify. As we continue to burn fossil fuels, these events will only get hotter, longer and more frequent. The last 11 days globally yeah. have been warmer than any other on record. So what's extreme heat do to our bodies? And how can we adapt our buildings, workplaces and ourselves to cope with this dramatically altered climate? I'm The Guardian science editor, Ian Sample, and this is Science Weekly. So, start off, heart rate strap. Mm-hmm. I'll get you to wear that just around your chest. Yep. To find out how our bodies are going to be affected as the climate warms, producer Madeline and I are visiting Roehampton University, 
where Professor Lewis Halsey and his team have set up a special heat room to explore how resting metabolic rate, a measure of how much energy the human body consumes to keep ticking over, reacts to hot and humid conditions. Chris Wolfe got me set up. Uh, these little silver dots are for skin temperature. So we've got... I've volunteered to be a guinea pig, and the 50-degree room is far from the only uncomfortable thing I've got waiting for me. We've then got a rectal thermistor, which will get you to insert, and that gives us core temperature. Fabulous. If you want to head to the bathroom, pop this one in, and then we'll do these ones. Is there any um, guidance you give? Oh, so, my God, what's in there? Just to make things a little bit easier. Is that lube? Yeah. It's not painful. I'll be the judge of that. that. <laughs> No, I will do it all in, the, all in the name of science. Yeah, we'll do the heart rate strap and we'll do... We'll do that when I come out, yeah? Yeah, I'll just let you do that one. Fab. Heart rate might be a bit elevated, Ian. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> Unfortunately, it was too late to back out. And after my temperature was measured, it was time for me to enter the heat room. <laughs> we'll find out how my body reacted later but I wanted to get a sense of just how quickly the planet is warming. For that, I spoke to Professor Jean Polutikoff, a climate scientist and the founding director of the National Climate Change Adaptation Research Facility at Griffith University in Queensland, Australia. Her recent research has looked at how to keep factory workers cool in Dhaka, Bangladesh. We talk about global warming, and it is global, but different places experience different amounts. I have seen suggestions that really big urban areas like Dakar, with over 100 million people living there, can expect warming, which is six to seven degrees more than the global average by the end of the century. And that's a huge amount. We expect, depending on how we all behave, two to three, maybe at the worst, four to five. But big cities like Dakar are looking at numbers that I find hard to believe. You know, if you add six to seven to four to five, you're looking at 10 degrees of warming. That is truly frightening. And those numbers, though, are averages. I mean, they, in some sense, mask the actual peaks you'll be getting in particular places, right? Yes, they do. There's a sort of psychological element, I suppose, to heat. We can go for so long without really noticing that things are becoming warmer. And then suddenly there seems to be this sense that, oh, heat waves really are becoming worse than they were. The extremes can behave very differently from the mean. If you increase the mean a little bit, the extremes can increase a lot more eventually having not really noticed that things are becoming warmer, we suddenly wake up to the fact that, yes, things are different. And I think we're at that point. Are we heating up as a planet faster than you expected? In fact, the numbers have remained remarkably steady. So when I started out my career more decades ago than I care to remember, the best guess from the climate models was by the end of the century, it would be between 1.5 and 4 degrees of warming. And those sort of big numbers haven't really changed that much over time and we're progressing pretty much as the climate models have suggested. As the planet warms, it will be important to find sustainable ways to adapt existing buildings and infrastructure for use in ever hotter temperatures. 
This week in Italy, electricity consumption reached a 2023 record as people turned off vans and ramped up air conditioning. To study potential alternatives, Jean chose the often sweltering environment of ready-made garment factories in Bangladesh. In the factory, temperatures regularly rise above 35 degrees and the humidities in the monsoon season are regularly of the order of 65 to 75%. So those are thoroughly unpleasant working conditions and the factories are poorly insulated. The majority of them don't have full air conditioning. They use very large fans. So what were you looking at in that study exactly? What sort of strategies to achieve what aim? We were looking at the physical characteristics of the factory building and how you might be able to modify those to cool the building without using anything that would be energy intensive like air conditioning. We looked at painting the roof white, lining the roof with insulated panels and painting those white, putting in a green roof, uh, vegetation, and finally putting in shading. And what did you find made the biggest difference overall? We found that the biggest difference came through insulated white panels, or you could do it with shading. They were able to cool the top floor of the building by between two and three degrees. What you find is that the amount of heat reduction that these non-energy intensive interventions can achieve is pretty similar to the amount of warming that is expected over the lifetime of a factory building, you know, 30 to 40 years, you might expect two to three degrees of warming. So you could say that these interventions will allow the factory to remain at its baseline level in terms of management of heat and humidity. And what did the factory owner make of the interventions you were testing and, and their effectiveness? Was Were they keen on it? He's just built a new factory. And guess what? <laughs> it has insulated panels on the roof, which are painted white. I have a feeling that you're going to see an awful lot of white roofs on factory buildings in Dakar over the next four or five years. The rising heat that we're expecting that we're due is clearly going to hit countries in different ways. There will be different conditions and different problems to deal with. But I'm wondering if you think there are key adaptations that we should all be making. The way in which we choose to adapt will vary according to where we live and the climate that we experience at the present time and warming will be superimposed on top of that. So one example would be if you live in Perth in Western Australia, the way that you manage heat at the present time is very, very different in your house from how we manage it here in Queensland. So in Perth, you tend to live in a brick-built house and you close it up during the daytime and you open it up at night because it's almost a desert climate in Perth. So it's quite cool at night and very hot in the daytime. So you try to keep the heat out during the day and then at night you open it, the house up and let the cool air come in. You wouldn't do that here in Queensland because during the summer season, 
it's hot in the daytime, but it's also hot at night. Basically, you deal with that by just opening your house as much as possible and trying to get a breeze. So where you are determines how you're going to deal with future heat. I don't think there's one size fits all. And whether the environment is humid or not is important for the body's reaction to heat. In humid environments, our natural response of producing sweat to cool off becomes less effective. Because the air's already so wet, there's nowhere for that moisture on your skin to go. Professor Lewis Holsey explained. If you're locked in that chamber, unable to escape, of course this is entirely hypothetical, he would be in a lot of trouble within a few hours because He's not able to lose heat from his body through convection and conduction because the external environment is warmer than he is. And his sweat isn't doing a lot for him. It may be doing a bit, but not a lot because it's a humid environment. So he has no other mechanisms to lose heat from his body. And instead, he's taking heat on, even though he's only resting. I think I've gone from feeling warm to feeling hot. But it's interesting because my core temperature hasn't Ian, I can't believe you're about to do some cycling. Feel that breeze? <laughs> You've made a grave error. One of the things that has come out of the research which I think can be relevant to increases in global temperatures, is that you get huge variability between individuals in how their metabolic rate increases or how much it increases. So you get some, you might call them non-responders, who show no increase in metabolic rate, and you get other people that are showing substantial increases. If you're in a hot environment, if your metabolic rate goes up, you are generating more heat. And that may not be beneficial to you because the point is you're already hot and you're trying to get cooler. So there's some possibility there that some people may be responding less metabolically to heat are going to be better off in some respects than people that respond more. This just opens up the possibility that there's opportunities to understand those physiological types who are going to be better in the heat and those who are going to be in more trouble in the heat. The question of how to protect at-risk individuals from extreme heat is crucial. One estimate puts the death toll from last year's European heat waves alone at 61,000. Some parts of the world are now bringing in legislation to protect outdoor workers from heat-related deaths, but many remain vulnerable. This gets to the heart of my next guest's research. Dr. Aaron Bates, you're a physiologist at Griffith University in Australia, and you worked with Jean on the study in Dhaka, Bangladesh. But you focus on mitigating the risk of heat waves at the individual level, trying to keep us all cool, I suppose. One of the things you're researching is occupational safety in hot conditions. What kind of workers are we talking about here? Well, typically, these workers sort of fall under three key extremes. They have a duration of work that is usually prolonged, an intensity of work that is usually high, and they're also exposed to high extreme conditions, whether it be temperatures, humidities, radiant heat from like the sun, for instance, or the occupational task that they might be doing, whether they be 
in construction or mining industry and machinery around that. Workers who are exposed to subsequent days of heat stress have impaired thermoregulation. And then as the days progress, they're having higher and higher body temperatures for essentially performing the same amount of work. So heat strain becomes additive over time. And the same sort of thing is present in the epidemiological evidence. You've also just done a pilot study for sawmill workers in Thailand. Tell me about that work. In Thailand, we uh, measured a bunch of workers working in a sawmill for an eight-hour work shift across a number of different days. And those conditions can get quite warm, even though it's an indoor space. There's high humidities, air temperatures can, on the most extreme days, exceed 40 degrees inside. And then they have relatively low airflow in that space as well. So we had three groups. The first group would do their normal work and go about their day-to-day business. The second group wore a cooling vest that was replenished throughout the day. Uh, A third group had access to a cooling oasis that they could go to throughout the day. And what we found was these workers had much lower levels of cardiovascular and thermoregulatory strain throughout the workday. The workers had preferences towards the cooling vest that we implemented, mainly because the workers liked the effect of the cooling that was applied over a more prolonged period. But the problem with some of these cooling techniques, it's tough to get access to industrial conditions to to implement some of these things because these things come at a cost of potentially productivity, but you get the gain of worker health. And so it's been able to try and find these sustainable cooling strategies that are scalable, cost-effective, without having these secondary impacts on productivity. Of course, workers aren't the only people vulnerable to heat. We know older people are at risk of getting ill or dying from excessive heat. Why is that? So what happens with older people as they age is we see changes in their body's ability to thermoregulate. Normally, it starts to become much more noticeable once we hit our 50s and 60s. Our ability to output sweat, which is our primary means of removing heat from the body, is diminished. We also have a less responsive autonomic vascular system. So that means our ability to vasodilate in our skin, which is our primary means of cooling down. We send our core body blood that is nice and hot that we've generated through our metabolism. And we send that to the skin to then lose that heat in the environment when sweat evaporates from the skin surface. So our ability to then have nice responsive blood vessels is diminished. And then as we become older, there's also a couple of other major things. Our heart becomes generally weaker. So for every heart beat pumped, there's less blood pumped around the body and our overall heart rate maximum is lower. So when you look at the problems that older people have in a heat wave, for example, do the majority tend to be ill because of the heat itself or is it more from the impact of heat on their pre-existing conditions? It's certainly the latter. The the predominant thing with heat is that it sort of attacks the weak link within the body of whatever system that is. So if you have a weak heart or a poor cardiovascular system for some underlying cardiovascular disease, then heat will make that system work harder. And as a result, that's the first thing that breaks. And then that's the kind of thing we see presenting in emergency departments and ambulance call-outs and hospital admissions when heatwave strike. Before we let you go, Aaron, we should grab some tips from you on how to keep cool when extreme heat conditions come along. If someone's core body temperature has gone up, what's the best way to cool them down? It depends on the severity. So cold water immersion is the best form of cooling body temperature down, but normally that needs to be done 
with medical supervision and monitoring because you have the risk of potentially cooling them down too fast, too hard, and then that can be just as detrimental as overheating. Somewhere in the vicinity of, say, you know, 10 to 20 degrees of water, um, so not particularly cold, um, and certainly 20 degrees of water is, is not that much less effective than, say, 10 degrees of water. So really, you could be talking about almost tap water, a cold bath, and that sort of level of immersion can be done at the hands and the feet, maybe not the whole body. Things like the use of fans in conjunction with, say, wetting of clothing, dousing of the skin to promote and sort of supplement the sweat that may be already produced, and then using things like ice towels. But each of these cooling strategies have their own sort of pros and cons and and when you should and shouldn't use them. So for instance, fans are, are certainly more effective as a rule of thumb when it's more humid. And as it's drier, you probably want to try and supplement that with some additional wetting of your skin or wetting of your clothes to make sure that you're adding to the sweat evaporation that would already be occurring. In a dry environment, your body is really able to evaporate the sweat really well. The fanning helps speed that up. But in a very, very hot environment, what you don't want to do is the fan is sending the hot air of the environment into the person's body and heating them up even faster. So there's considerations that need to be made with any of these sort of strategies to find out what works best in your given context. Um, and, and I guess that individualization is sort of the key to where um, a lot of the research and particularly my own has started to try to move towards rather than a one-size-fits-all approach. Given how global temperatures are going and extreme weather events are going as a result of that, we're all going to have to get used to building in these kinds of behaviours into our daily lives, aren't we? That's right. Yeah. So I guess one thing I haven't mentioned so far is, has been the use of air conditioning. And you've alluded to it there. So air conditioning is, is a very strong protective mechanism for heat stress and something that should be used when absolutely required, no doubt. But our reliance upon it is actually sort of becoming a bit of a, a maladaptive response as we sort of see this feedback loop of air conditioning to use to combat heat, which then contributes further and further to climate change. We need to um, find these more sustainable ways of, of cooling down people without necessarily making air conditioning our first port of call. But air conditioning is a very protective strategy as well and something that under a lot of circumstances we will require. Back at Roehampton University, I was cooling down as well, and I caught up with Professor Lewis Halsey to examine my results. We can see your heart rate, right, before you've gone into the chamber. So this is you at baseline. So you've got a nice, healthy heart rate. That's all the cycling you do to work each day. So you've got a resting heart rate of 70, or if anything, a little bit less. Then you're going into the chamber here. We just look at your heart rate, and you can see it's going up simply because of cardiovascular changes in response to the heat. And actually, Mm -hmm. it's coming up above 90. Now, at the end there, you did a a valiant turn on the bicycle for 20 minutes. And then, of course, you can see a big increase in heart rate, as you would expect. Wow. Actually, you're up to 182. Yeah. That's probably close to your top-end heart rate. You were working hard there. Okay. As expected, your core temperature here is tracked up as well, and your body just can't lose it as fast as you're producing that heat. So if you kept on cycling, in principle, eventually you'd overheat. So looking at those figures, I feel quite safe looking at those. I'm just worried about how they're going to go in the future. So I think I just need to keep an eye on keeping fit to some extent. 
My thanks to Professor Lewis Holsey, Dr. Chris Wolfe, Professor Jean Palutikoff, and Dr. Aaron Bache. You can find more Guardian reporting on this story at theguardian.com. And please do listen to today's excellent episode of Today in Focus, featuring environment editor Damien Carrington and Guardian reporters explaining how the heatwave is impacting people across the world. And that's it for today. The producers were Madeline Finley, Ned Carter-Miles and Joshan Chana. The sound design was by Tony Onachuku and the executive producer is Ellie Bury. We'll be back on Tuesday. See you then. This is The Guardian.